This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. My guest today is Kenneth Anand, who is the ex-general counsel of Yeezy and now the co-founder of fashion licensing company 380 Group and the co-author of Sneaker Law, which is a case book for all things sneakers. Uh, I was excited to meet Kenneth, but uh, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to talk to him about because I'm not a sneaker person. I, I, I'm no more than a casual fan of Kanye, but I couldn't say no to meeting him, knowing what he's accomplished. And so I'm really glad that I did. We had a, a really sprawling conversation. We covered a huge range of topics, including really diving into the sneaker industry and how it intersects with hip hop and other cultures and uh, some of the impacts and some of the, the tools that are being developed there that are being applied elsewhere. So I thought this was just a really fascinating conversation. And uh, I was so struck with Kenneth's humility and uh, how much he's been able to track ego and, and the advantages that's uh, brought him. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as well. Kenneth, hey, great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, we when we talked last, uh, I heard a little about your story and I'd read about it, and uh, but I wanted to hear it again. I'm sure other people want to hear it again because uh, it's a unique story. But you grew up in uh, a nice town in suburban New Jersey, so you're his fellow, you know, New Jerseyan. Yeah. And uh, so then, you know, so you you went to college like you should, and then uh, you know you were really passionate about. Remind me, were you you were a producer at the time? Yeah, I was trying to make it in the music business. Yeah. And you had, see, this is interesting. Maybe we should rewind because we should talk in New Jersey. So I grew up in New Jersey and, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, we had a lot of pride about, you know, the rap that came out of, you know, primarily yeah. New York, of course, you know, so at the time we had Wu-Tang, we had Notorious and, uh, you know, like it was a time also like when, of course, there's the East Coast, West Coast, and that kind of heightened your awareness of the, you know, the place that you were, you know? And uh, I mean, so in a lot of ways, it was a really exciting time, you know, growing up in that era in the 90s. But I always found it so strange. And I'm curious to hear about your experience, because your experience is something that's shared by other people I grew up with. But I grew up in a pretty good suburb of New Jersey. It was not fancy by any means. West Windsor, Plainsboro, starting Plainsboro, which is the rougher side, but went to West Windsor, (laughs) which is the fancier side. Um, But so, you know, we had a huge Asian population. We had like, so like it was 40% Asian at the time. I think it's higher than that now. And uh, I knew that was special, but you didn't really appreciate it. But but um, some of the interesting things about that is um, how prevalent hip hop was in that community. And it was so interesting because it was like growing up the way that I did. I don't know what it was, the factors of, of my family, or my circumstances where, you know, that's not something that was native to me. You know, it wasn't something that, you know, like that wasn't the core of my being. But it spoke to so many people I knew. So I, I knew a bunch of South Asian guys who they ran a b-boy crew and they were really good you know and so it's just yeah. like it was fun to see them like in school like they had like pieces of paper they would like put down for like a slippery surface and like you know sure um, it was cool to watch and it's just but i was just like what is happening here and i just i never i was so fascinated with like the draw that hip-hop has for other communities including the south asian community uh so i want to hear about that like what was like you know maybe we can talk about you know when did that first click for you? When did you first feel like, okay, this is, this is speaking to me? Well, um, you know, I'm a little bit older than you. So I grew up in the eighties and the nineties with hip hop. Um, so I remember my brother brought home a record of run DMC and Aerosmith. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting blend of the two. He sort of chose the Aerosmith side 
And, you know, he went the Guns N' Roses route, David Bowie and Nirvana and like all this stuff. And I chose the hip hop route. For some reason, I identify with that more. Like I just I just felt the rhythm. I was into drums at the time. I was a very, um, you know, beat oriented kid. I used to beatbox, you know, and I make all kinds of weird noises as a kid. I remember that distinctly. And so, like, I just gravitated to hip hop. And I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. It was a very diverse town. And there was no shortage of people that were into hip hop music at that time. There was no shortage of black people. Um, we had a lot of Asians in the community. Uh, there weren't that many South Asians. So, um, you know, naturally, uh, there was a group of uh, a group of kids that I that I hung with and we were all into hip hop. And, you know, we were like the U.N. It was like the melting pot. And uh, hip hop was sort of something that that kept us all bound together. I started making beats in high school and that was something that I kept doing through college. I had a, I had a band in college. We used to play at frat parties and I used to produce the music. And, uh, you know, I had this, this, uh, sort of pipe dream about breaking into the music business after college. So I moved back in with my parents and then I would go into the city and take meetings at record labels. And it was super frustrating, you know, like breaking into the music business. Number one is not easy. Um, number two, it was harder when you're trying to break into hip hop as somebody who's not black, um, you know, at the time, especially. And then number three, um, you know, my parents were big proponents of education. So they were like, all right, well, what's next? When are you going back to school? And you so how long until you did that? So it was about a year, I would say, you know, I took a, a solid year off to try to, to try to make in the music business. And I had some mild success. Um, but then, you know, I thought, well, um, you know, I had a, a, a very um, strong relationship with creative people. My brother is a creative um, and I had a bleeding heart for advocating for them. So why not um, if I'm struggling to make it in the music business and I see the plight that creatives have in the music business, why not um, go to law school and try to protect and advocate for their rights? And so that was what initially drew me to law school. And this is the story I want to get to, like, tell me about the outfit you rolled into the first day of law school. Well, I mean, you know, I had no lawyers in my family. I had no real barometer for how um, law school should be or what the first day looked like. So um, I rolled up the first day of law school wearing my typical streetwear, which at the time was a, a powder blue, a Nietzsche tracksuit. Um, and it didn't take long for me to look around and realize that um, none of my, uh, none of my colleagues and, and, and classmates would look like me. And so that was just like the first thing that struck me as um, different about law school that like I had to completely, um, you know, change, uh, you know, how I presented myself in order to be a part of this legal community. Yeah. I'm trying to picture if anybody dressed up like that. I mean, yeah, I probably some people did. Um, I mean, I think it's much more, it's much more, um, prevalent now, like yeah, streetwear sure. is everywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was one of the, the things and we'll, you know, we can get into this later, but like my journey was realizing that as a kid, I had all these interests and I had all these interests in subcultures like hip hop, video games, sneakers that now are massive, massive multi-billion dollar industries. And, uh, I don't know, for some reason, I thought that I wasn't, um, you know, that I was different and that maybe that this wasn't the correct path for me. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you did persevere because I definitely had 
some of my most entertaining, genuinely fun and funny people that I knew that were probably creatives. Now that I think about it, I didn't think about them in those terms. Uh, they didn't stick it out. They were just like, okay, this is, it was just like the scene that you described and okay, that how this is not going to work for me. So props you for pushing through and, and how did you push through? Yeah. Well, I don't want to say that I always push through. Like, um, you know, I sort of had an awakening in my um, later years as I built a comfortable career for myself. And I talk about this often, you know, I very much had to assimilate number one, to be part of law firm culture. Like, you know, nobody was wearing streetwear in law firms. I was a litigator and, uh, you know, a transactional attorney. So at times I would have to go to court and wear suits. And, you know, I had no problem with that. I enjoyed dressing up in a suit. I liked the look, you know, like um, the, the ideal, of being a, um, a successful lawyer in New York city was sort of this Harvey Specter character, you know, like that I very much, um, fantasized and glorified. And so, you know, there was part of that that was really exciting to me. And also I had to pay off my student loan. So I had financial concerns. So, you know, being part of this and being a successful lawyer obviously was a goal of mine, but I think as I, um, as I started to feel more comfortable in my role as a lawyer and I started to remember like, who was this guy before he got to law school? And like, what does he want to do with the rest of his career? I started to realize that like, I had some, I had some clients that were completely intersecting with my passions. And that was fashion, streetwear, sneakers, um, hip hop and entertainment. And how can I do more of that and be who I am to them? You know, because they really liked the fact that I had all these experiences and backgrounds in what they were doing also in addition to my experience as a lawyer. So, you know, I think um, one of the things that I try to um, tell people when they come to me, like, how did you break into this business and how did you um, get to do what you're doing today is like, I just woke up and remembered who I was, you know, and I was this fun loving kid who had all these interests um, that now were a little bit more mainstream than they used to be. And I realized that I could do a great job making a career of it. You know, it's, 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 uh, you've benefited from how much more mainstream this interest has gotten. I'd be curious if, what if it still wasn't that interesting, you know, like, you know, where would you be right now? Um, and, you know, so I think it's, it, it's a point of reflection to think about, you know, like how do you orient yourself even in the absence of, you know, to really chase after the things that you're really interested in. But I guess yeah. let, let's say someone is, you know, at the frontier of what's niche and, and um, you know, something that feels like, gosh, how is ever going to get popular? And I'm hard pressed to think of an example because probably I'm not at that cutting edge for, for, for plenty of things. Um, but so, you know, like what advice now that you've experienced the changes you've gone through and been able to tune yourself better, how would you advise someone who's feeling that way? Who's feeling like, okay, I'm into this niche thing and who knows if this ever gets popular as say streetwear has gotten? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think um, people define success in different ways and uh, you know, it just so happened that the sneaker industry is like a $90 billion industry. And I saw that there was some way to meld my passion for it with what's going on now. But um, I would say if you're excited about something, you know, go after it. Like, it doesn't have to, like, I, I, I just saw this quote from Rick Rubin today that I posted on my Instagram that said, you know, um, it doesn't matter whether other people find what you do interesting. The important thing is that you find it interesting. And I think if you're doing something that you love, then there's success in that, whether it's monetarily successful or not. And I think that's 
obviously easier said than done when you have loans and you have all these other responsibilities. Um, but I think we all were individuals with unique experiences, passions, interests, hobbies before we got to law school. Why should law school beat that out of us? Like, why, you know, why do we have to go through this ringer where now all of a sudden we've entered some factory where we're just cookie cutter, you know, lawyers um, trained to be a certain way and to relinquish all of our outside interests so that we can be the best lawyers that we can be. In fact, it's our outside experiences that make us the best lawyers that we can be as long as we learn how to merge the practice of law with those experiences. So can you talk a little more about that? So what are the ways, you know, I can see behind you, you've got this extensive sneaker collection. So what are the ways you as a consumer has informed how you counsel your clients? Like, what, Are there some examples you can share of like, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, you know, I think being a fan and a consumer, first of all, helped me immensely. Like, for example, when I showed up at Yeezy on the first day, I knew everything there was to know about the company, its releases, um, Kanye West as a rapper, a producer, uh, a fashion, you know, mogul, everything, you know, and that's just from my pure enjoyment of Kanye and his, you know, and his various business endeavors. And so, when I started getting exposed to the inner workings of the company, um, you know, it was like I had a, a, an immediate leg up, right? So, so I think being a fan, being a consumer, I think is something that sometimes we write off as childish or you have to grow out of, you know, but for me, it was something essential. It was essential for me to understand the hip hop business. It was essential for me to understand fashion. It was essential for me to understand streetwear, all the things that I craved and consumed. And now that's what I'm trying to do along with my co-author, Jared, is like tell people that we can, you know, we can educate people on the business side. So you can take something that you are passionate about and maybe put all of your energy into as a hobby and as a, you know, and as a fan and actually make a career out of it. And it doesn't have to be sneakers. It can be video games. It can be NFTs, like whatever it is that you're interested in, there's, there can be a niche for it. And, and, uh, and, and, and law doesn't have to be, you know, you know, one, one pathway to success. So since you mentioned your co-author, you know, talking about your book, then I think it's interesting because your book does seem to reflect this, this, this perspective you have about, moving beyond just the strictly legal components and not being this cookie cutter or just problem solver, but really being able to see the big picture and it helps so much how passionate you are about the business and just the culture. I mean, not even the business to really be able to penetrate and, and, and get insights. So, yeah, I mean, your book is, I mean, it's beautiful and, Thank you. Uh, you know, I do, I appreciate it was, it's kind of interesting because there's, there's many departures from a typical law school textbook casebook uh but it's just kind of really amusing that you know you kind of landed on uh the traditional aesthetic for the cover of course you can see yeah. some differences uh right away but yeah that's cool i mean um, that was the goal the goal was for that when you see it on a shelf that you recognize it as a legal textbook but that when you open it it completely blows your mind and you know we have a we have a, a logo for sneaker law that's um inspired by um, Yeezus, which, um, you know, used a Metallica-esque X font, you know, like it was, it was something that, um, a lot of people have, uh, 
sort of related to and and really connect with. And so, but the rest of the cover, otherwise, other than the fact that it's in this beautiful red foil stamping, um, is exactly like a Civ Pro book might look, you know? And then you open it, it's full color. It's, you know, it's got a shoelace for the bookmark. We want people to fall in love with textbooks again and not return them to the bookstore when they're done with it, you know? Like this is something that should sit on your coffee table for a long time, we would hope. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting about it is just like how much uh, more kind of entertaining content you put in here. Uh, I mean, just to give a breakdown of different designers, you know, uh, I mean, so I think that stuff is is so huge because, I mean, that reminds me of the ways that, you know, um, you know, the books we had that we used in like, you know, more like, say, I would say high school uh, or maybe middle school, how they were structured. Like they put a lot of entertaining things in there, but that mattered because then I just really like, I would sit in, I don't think I was that rare and do this. I would just sit and thumb through the science textbooks. And I'm just like, this is just pretty interesting how you presented this. And I'm just yeah. doing it. And uh, you know, and that stuff really boosts your attention. So I just think from a pedagogical pedagogical stance, is that how you say mm-hmm. it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I just think it's a really good tool because it's just going to really help people wrap their heads around. Okay. Well then, okay. So I, I've had an interest in the business of hip hop and, Oh, I kind of know a couple of names. And it's like, no, like here's all the names of the designers and you need to know about, you know, all the collabs they've done and all the history. So like you need to step up your game because this is something you need to get more systematic about. But let me ask you about that. I mean, it's like, you know, my, you know, the kind of creative or persona in hip hop, I mean, it can really range these days. I mean, I think it's just because it's just, it's grown so much. But you can have people that are more, I think, you know, from my perspective as an anthropologist about hip hop, have people more casual about it or more intense about it i feel like there is this huge range and uh so tell me about you know with with this book i mean like you know what is what is your effect like which of those two are you more targeting towards if any and tell me more about like you know who this is going to speak to who's going to jump up and do something because they read this book sure well i think i mean hip-hop culture is obviously deeply infused in sneaker culture and and vice versa so, you know, when we when we wrote the book, obviously we wanted to speak to some of that community, but you know, sneakerheads are not limited to to hip hop heads, mm-hmm. right? So um, you know, we really wanted to write this to people that had an interest in sneakers. And the goal is when you're done with this book, is that you know everything you need to know about the sneaker business, or at least you've scratched the surface of it um, and you have a pathway for success in whatever aspect you want to go into. So, you know, for lawyers, if they're reading this, it's essential that they read the design section. It's essential that they read the manufacturing section. It's essential that they read the reselling and the counterfeit section, because in order to be an effective practitioner, you have to know every aspect about the business. I believe, um, I don't believe you can be an effective practitioner unless you really know the industry that you're working in. Like you wouldn't be a corporate lawyer if you didn't understand the market or the SEC, right? So, um, you know, the more effective that you can, uh, the more knowledge that you can get, the more effective that you can be. F- on, the, on the flip side, if you're a designer, why should you not know these essential areas of intellectual property law that help you protect your designs? Like, why are we keeping that information from designers? And why is that information not accessible to designers in a way that actually makes sense to them visually, um, you know, culturally, and, uh, you know, tone-wise? So because, um this information should not be daunting. It should not be off-putting. And so we're trying to bring them all together. So if you're a lawyer, you should be able to get just as much out of the other aspects of the book, 
you know, as you do the legal sections. And if you're a designer, you should be able to get just as much out of the legal sections as you do the design section. So it's a, it's a tight, tight rope to walk, but I think we've done it well. And we've seen it already um, having immense impacts. Like, I mean, Parsons is picking up the book in the fall for their outgoing students and it's already mandatory reading in many law schools. Um, it's only a matter of time before business schools pick this up because the sneaker business is booming. You know, I get calls weekly from from investment bankers that want to understand more about um, reselling, about you know the potential IPOs, and you know what this culture is all about, and how they can benefit financially off of it. So it's you know it's it's real, and uh, it's something like who would have thought that something as simple as what you wear on your feet could bring in so many different aspects in terms of business, design, law, celebrity, athletes, et cetera. Yeah, I, I guess one, uh, I guess it's interesting to think about, do you feel like, because um, I know you practice in different areas, you know, beyond, you know, consulting for, um, you know, shoe companies or, or, uh, or similar brands. And so in your from your vantage point, do you think that the lawyer is, you know, in the field of, of fashion uh, or the kinds of fashion that you touch on or sneakers specifically, do you feel that lawyers are more intertwined with the business than relative to other fields? Do you feel like you can parcel out more or, or maybe not? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I mean, um, I think in order to be an effective fashion lawyer, I think you do have to know the, the industry. You do have to be fairly intertwined with the business. You have to keep abreast because it's always changing. I mean, fashion is is super rapid. You know, what's hot today is not going to be hot tomorrow. So I do think in, in order to be a successful and, and uh, effective fashion attorney, you do have to be very intertwined with the business. Um, you know, whether or not that's the case for, for other industries, you know, perhaps. I mean, you know, I practiced employment law for a very long time, and I had to understand what was going on in the employment um, industry. So I think understanding the way um, businesses are are changing is is important no matter no matter what your 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 practice and your discipline like for example if you miss the wave on fair labor standards act you know and you would you would not be an effective advocate to your employment law clients because they might not be paying their employees the right way or you might not be able to defend them if they get uh, involved in an employment lawsuit i think you know i think in order to be an effective practitioner we must um we must lean more heavily on business and this is something that actually was never taught to me in law school. And I think law schools are now looking at the way they um, groom their students and prepare them to be more effective in the workplace. In fact, there's a lot of discourse about this going on, on LinkedIn, on Clubhouse, on like all these other um, social media spaces about like, well, what makes an effective lawyer? Is it the academia that we're teaching them? Is it like, you know, this age old way of taking a look at law and like, how your professors cram it down your throat, or is it much more adjunct driven? Is it much more practice driven? Is it much more business driven? And, uh, you know, for me, it's certainly the latter. In fact, when I started working at Yeezy, I went back and got my business degree, an executive MBA, just so I could be a more effective um, business person, lawyer, you know, everything. Like, I just think it's essential. And is, are there any tangible examples of how you thought about things that changed as, as a result of that education? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, number one, I think, uh, you know, for me to grow in the company along, you know, an executive level, I think if I was just 
looked at as a lawyer, then I would be stuck in my general counsel role, you know, and, uh, you know, for the opportunities that I have today in growing my fashion business, I think, you know, my business acumen and the things that I've learned along the way about being a best, you know, being a, a, a um, you know, a, an effective business person, I think, you know, are real. And I think sometimes lawyers are, are pushed down a path where it's like, you know, let the business people do their thing, let the lawyers do their thing. And uh, I'm not saying that you have to be a jack of all trades, but if you allow business to seep into your life, if you allow yourself to educate yourself, if you, if you educate yourself on the business aspects just as much as the legal, I think you can have uh, a very um, varied career and, you can, and who knows what opportunities might open up for you. So I guess one thing that I'm wondering about, you know, when you say that uh, the legal education is falling short and your book is a contribution to it, what do you see as the effect of your book is going to be on uh, the profession or, you know, the, the kind of up and coming people who are interested in sneaker law uh, or enter the sneaker industry? Like what, what's the projected impact you think this will have in three to five years? So, I mean, you know, what we're seeing right now is the, the, the first reaction is um, shared by professors and students alike. Like it's, it's cool, it's relevant, it's hip. We're teaching the same topics that you'd learn in an IP class. We're teaching the same topics that you'd learn in an employment class, um, but we're doing it through this exciting lens of sneakers. So like there's this sort of, um, you know, uh, excitement around it and this sort of cool factor to it. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that, because all we're trying to do is shake up the way people learn these topics and to make it more engaging, to make it more accessible, to make it more relevant for students who are coming in to law school now who don't um, relate to these sort of age old textbooks. So, um, you know, we're not saying that we're uh, changing the textbook game, but we certainly set out to disrupt it a little bit in how we present our topics. So. Um, you know, I think law school is in this period right now where, um, you know, most of the last year and a half has been remote. Um, students are looking at their investment and wondering when they'll get the return on it. There's more and more lawyers in the field today. So jobs are scarce. It's harder to set yourself apart. And, uh, you know, you have to be more effective as a lawyer faster, right? Like, you know, people, they don't have the the time or the, uh, the, the resources to educate you and groom you as they did in law firms. So we're just trying to speed up that process and say, okay, if you want to be an effective practitioner, here are the basics, here's the basics for the, the business, and let's get you excited about these topics so that you can go out and learn more on your own. And going back to something you were talking about earlier, I'm just... Uh... I'm kind of fascinated with this. So you're talking about the overlap between hip hop and sneaker, uh, you know, culture. But yeah. so you said that, you know, of course there's, it's not a, a total overlap. So, so what are the non hip hop influences on sneaker wear and aesthetic and culture? Sure. I mean, you know, I think, um, I think there's massive skate culture influence on sneakers and sneakers of, you know, massively influenced skate culture there's just pure athleticism and, and uh, you know, sport in general. Like not every athlete is into hip hop culture, right? Like, so 
Um, you know, there's performance running shoes and sneakers. There's, um, you know, and then there's the celebrity component. That's not necessarily all hip hop driven. There's tons of collaborations with celebrities that have their own sneaker line. Um, there's fashion, for example, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but Stella McCartney, um, who I, whom I know the general counsel of very well, um, you know, has, has done released more sneakers than people even know about, but, you know, you might not interact with Stella McCartney if you're a hip hop or, you know, just a sneakerhead, but you might interact with them if you have, um, you know, a certain sense of style, a certain, um, you know, brand identity, if you're interested in, um, eco-friendly, cruelty-free, um, you know, products and, uh, sustainable products, like all these speak to different areas and like the sneaker industry is always looking to target these um, different areas. It's not just hip hop driven. I think sometimes when we look at sneakers, we think, oh, well, you know, every sneakerhead has to be wearing a pair of Jordans or Yeezys. So obviously this is hip hop driven. It's much, much bigger than that. Yeah, it's really fascinating to think about because then you can think about, you know, really distinctive sneakers and lots of other parts. Like just the first thing popped in my head was like Jerry Seinfeld, like, you know, on a shoes, just got those huge sneakerhead, huge exactly, sneakerhead, right? So there's, or like Ellen, right? That's another person that comes to mind. So yeah, that really is interesting to think about. Uh, so what are, I guess, I'd like to learn some more from just some more comparisons. So, so what are ways in which the sneaker industry is really different from other kinds of fashion? I mean, you know, just, you know, it seems like a different genre. And so what are, you know, are there supply chain issues that are, are pretty different or how they're promoted or sold that are pretty different? Like what, what are the ways in which uh, there's a departure between those two? I mean, you know, I guess speaking on a, on a high level, like, you know, the footwear industry is very different from the rest of the apparel industry. Like it's very specific, um, you know, how, you know, how sneakers are developed, um, concepted, sampled, produced, manufactured, and then distributed is very different from how the rest of the fashion world is, is run. Um, so that's, that's first. And then, um, you know, I think also the, the, the reach of, of, of sneakers as a whole is much more accessible than certain pockets of fashion, right? Like I think if you're, if you're into high fashion and you're into Prada or you're into, um, let's say Ferragamo, you know, yes, they all have sneakers now, but that's not really their focus. Sneakers is much more accessible. Like it's a, it's a, it's a place where everybody can sort of jump in, you know, like you can have a pair of Stan Smiths that you love. You can have a classic Chuck Taylor. If you're into rock and roll, like, like there's so many different areas and, you know, fashion is the same way. So sneakers are just a complement to the, to the rest of your identity. And I think, you know, everyone has an identity through their feet. In fact, there's this saying like, you know, I make shoe contact before I make eye contact, right? Like I like to say I, I make sneaker contact before I make eye contact. I'm always looking at what people wear because I think it says a lot about them. And, uh, you know, Jared and I, when we do these lectures, we sometimes ask the students to talk to, to us about in the beginning about their favorite pair of sneakers, because we can learn a lot about a person through the type of sneaker they interact with. Like somebody could show us, you know, a pair of Nike Tailwinds and we're like, all right, well, you're a runner. You're, you're definitely into training. Like we know your vibe. And then somebody could show us this pair of limited Jordans and we could say, all right, well, you're more of a, a casual, like, you know, sneakerhead who has, um, who, who really cares about being part of the culture. And then somebody could show us a pair of beat up, 
you know, Stan Smith's and we're like, all right, well, this is somebody that's comfy that like likes what they like and they're, they run their shoes into the ground. And so, you know, I think sneakers have so many different angles and, um, you know, they intersect, intersect in, in ways that, you know, maybe not everybody's into fashion, but I think everybody's into sneakers in some way. Yeah, I think there's just, I, I suspect there's lots of things about sneaker culture because anything that's just kind of at the frontier, you know, those there's ideas and new ways of being that get pioneered there that spread to other parts of culture. So, you know, some things that, you know, there's some, probably some easy connections to make between, you know, drop culture and the artificial scarcity behind, you know, blockchain technology or NFTs. And so I'm curious, like, can you speak a little about that? You know, because I, I feel like you've, we've seen such a huge evolution in the past five years uh, around drop culture. And so what, what were the kind of the, the early, like, what's the kind of modern era of drop culture? Like, how do you date that? You know, like, what we think was the big bang of that? And what are the impacts this had beyond footwear? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I might be biased, but I think, um, you know, Kanye West had, you know, was probably the most influential when it came to um, drop culture and mastering how that works. I mean, you know, the way the red October Yeezys, you know, were announced on Twitter and just took the world by storm was sort of like the, the, the biggest, um, you know, example of, of drop culture at its, at its, um, you know, very early stages. And now I think we've seen uh, every brand wants to try to get in on that. You know, I think um, whether it's uh, Gucci doing collabs and, 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 and quote unquote dropping them and, you know, just to get, bring new excitement around their brands. Um, drop culture is certainly here to stay. I think everybody wants to, to see their products hit the shelves and then fly off them immediately. So um, everybody's looking to harness that. But then also you have to understand that drop culture is not what sustains brands. Like, you know, it may be um, spikes in sales, but it may not keep the lights on on a day-to-day basis. And Nike is very good at um, taking drop culture to sort of satiate this um, rabid uh, and uh, very, um, you know, niche uh, sneakerhead market, but their general releases, their their, um, more accessible and wider um, release pairs of sneakers are what keeps the company afloat. Like drop culture only accounts for a very small part of that company's revenue and bottom line. So, um, you know, I think companies should look to drop culture as, you know, a way to diversify, to actually bring more excitement around the brand, but they shouldn't deviate from their core offerings and their core components um, in, in spite of just trying to generate hype. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I think there has to be a greater purpose of a brand. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing that come to life in, in many different ways. Like you can't take away Adidas's core component, which is soccer and football, um, European football, but also, you know, they've been wildly successful with Yeezys, you know, so like, um, or Pharrell's human race line, you know, like, and, and, and that only accounts for a very small piece of the puzzle. So um, a drop culture, is massive. And, you know, we see just because of the sheer um, uh, frenzy around it, that it, it it generates the most buzz. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about or to understand how drop culture ties into other lines of business. And like you say, it's a, it's a tactic, but not, you know, something that is the entire country's, the company is dependent on. So I guess with, 
that in mind then, so are there, what are the kind of uh, low hanging fruit you see outside of, you know, the sneaker world where you see like, Hey, here's, here's a, a type of industry that's ripe for starting to use this. Um, well, I mean, I, I, you know, we're seeing it in the NFT space, certainly, and that transcends across art. It transcends across, um, you know, digital creation and this sort of frenzy around, um, you know, one of one pieces that only certain people can have. And then there's this blockchain supply chain, um, you know, sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, tie in where people uh, know that they, that they can see where something has come and they know that there's, um, you know, a, a link to how this will be distributed further on. So I think, you know, we're seeing it there. Um, we're seeing, you know, drop culture in the baseball card business. I mean, you know, like I've seen more of my friends go from collecting sneakers to collecting baseball cards because it's more lucrative. Um, you know, it's more accessible. I think the people in the industry, at least the core collectors are a little bit more friendly. Um, they're not so off putting when it comes to like hoarding sneakers, like they're, they're, they seem to be more collaborative. Um, you know, so I think that that's another thing. And then we can look at, you know, all the different areas that these reselling um, platforms have diversified to like streetwear, um, you know, uh, Xboxes, Playstations, you know, I mean, people don't realize it, but um, there, you know, I was fortunate enough to get a PlayStation for my 10 year old at Christmas, but you know, there are people that still today in April can't get their hands on one and are willing to pay 700 to a thousand dollars for a PlayStation on the secondary market. So, you know, it, it, it's crazy what, what uh, you know, this sort of reselling and drop culture has, uh, has transcended into. Yeah. I think what's part of all that that's interesting to think about is, you know, how much more, I mean, kind of a theme is some this conversation has been, you know, the pursuit of your own interests. And so uh, it's interesting that, you know, the, the subject of the industry that you've been interested in is individuality itself, right? Like that's the whole point of, of sneaker culture. It's, uh, and, and part of that is premised on, you know, there is a certain amount of doing things like other people. Like if there wasn't a brand for a certain kind of person, you couldn't have that little fun game that you have with, you know, with Jared at the beginning of a, of a, of a uh, talk, you know, because right. then there is no way of like signaling if everything's just completely unique, well, then there's no way of getting to know people. So you do have to have groups of things. And so it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, what are the ways in which, um, what, how is that, that, that trend line seems unstoppable, right? The trend towards greater individuality, you know, when you watch, you know, move from the nineties, you know, you see ver- pretty much every character, if they've got a job, you got a suit on. Doesn't matter what the job is, everybody's got a suit on. And of course, some of the point is like how chafing that is. Uh, but so that's a category of problems that, you know, we're putting behind us, you know? Uh, so it's interesting to think about like, what are some of the bigger cultural impacts you're thinking are, are coming uh, as a result of this like greater focus on individuality? I mean, look, I think it's wonderful. I think it's something that, um, you know, I'm embracing in, in the, um, you know, the second phase of my career, the post-law phase of my career, if you will. Um, and I'm seeing it now in young law students. Um, I'm seeing it across the business and tech sectors. You know, um, it really is. Uh, about what you bring to the table as an individual that makes you special, right? Like these cookie cutter um, sort of roles, I think are are losing um, prevalence. And I think, 
you know, that's the way it should be. Like when you hire somebody, you should be interested not only um, in what they bring to the role that you're hiring for, but what they bring in terms of outside experiences, in terms of interests. Um, like we just, you know, we interviewed, uh, you know, a, a, an intern for, for sneaker law for the summer. And the first question was like, all right, yeah, what, what do you, what did you do before you got to law school? Who were you before you got to law school? Because that's what we want to tap into. Like we want to make sure that we don't beat that out of you and that you find some connection between what you're interested in, what sneaker law, with law and all these things. How do we put these pieces together? And so individuality, I think is key. I've certainly found a lot of success in it. And, uh, you know, I just try to be a beacon of hope for people that come into, um, you know, educational spaces like law that uh, maybe they don't feel like they fit in, but they should realize that they have a much better advantage than people that sort of um, just come out being uh, just like the next graduate, right? Like, I, I think, um, and I think that's very relevant to your to your audience. Like, you know, how do you set yourself apart? Um you know, and how do you take in all of the experiences that you um, that you learned growing up and before you even got to law school? And then how do you meld that with your legal education? And I don't think that's just limited to law. I think that should be across every industry. Yeah, I love that. Um, tell me about for yourself, you talked about some things that didn't feel right to you earlier in your practice and how you found that. Was there a moment where you really felt like, okay, I feel like I'm myself. Like, was there like a day that hit you? You know, what were you wearing that day? I mean, you know, I, I think all my life I've learned how to blend into different spaces. Like Montclair was a very multicultural town that I grew up in. I had all different types of friends. I felt very comfortable around all different types of people um, and all different types of social situations. So being in a law firm, I don't think was any different, really. I, I realized that, um, you know, uh, I had to dress a certain way to be looked at, um, you know, as someone who fit this mold. But, um, you know, I think as I started, um, you know, launching my own law firm and developing my own clients and really connecting with them one-on-one -on -one without a partner there who was responsible for that, um, that client relationship, I was responsible for that client relationship. And I realized that my way of dealing with clients was successful and they were re responding well to it. I think that's when I realized that I could be who I was and the person that I was raised to be by my parents, the person that um, I became because of my varied interests and my backgrounds could actually be an effective advocate for these clients, no matter what their problem was. You know, I was very compassionate. I was a good listener. Um, you know, these are tools that, they don't necessarily teach you in law school. They don't teach you about the practice of law. They don't teach you about developing business. Um, at least they didn't when I was graduating. I think that's starting to change. So I, I realized that, and it goes beyond just face value of what I was wearing at the time. It goes, it goes into like who I am as a person and how I want to connect with my clients. And I found that to be very easy and natural for me when I was doing it on my own. When I was with another lawyer and I had to sort of learn from them, uh, you know, there were things that I would have done, there are things that I wouldn't have done. And I think it's a very individual approach. And some lawyers are effective at it, and some aren't. But I think, again, these are skills that come from outside of the academia, um, 
you know, uh, construct. You know, one of the things that I really loved uh, that you included in Sneaker Law was uh, a, like uh, some of the tactical advice to people for how to immerse themselves in the industry. And so, you know, one of the things you had there was a page on networking. I thought that was, you know, that's not something you're going to find a lot of law school case books or whatever. Uh, and, and the subject of, you know, what you shared was really cool too. So can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I think um, networking has always been super important. I think we we put in the design section on how to become an effective designer, but it's applicable to, to um, really everybody. And, uh, you know, the, the example that we give is basically how Jared and I met. And it's really amazing. And I think a lot of um, people coming up in the legal industry can benefit from this. Like Jared, here, here was somebody that um, got his dream internship at Complex. He was, you know, surrounded by sneakers, surrounded by hip hop culture, surrounded by all these things that he was interested in, um, as I am. And, uh, you know, he didn't just sit there uh, complacent with his legal internship. He walked around, he met the people in the company. He actually started writing about the intersection of, um, of law and the protection of sneaker designs. And, you know, this is something that nobody was doing. And I saw that, like I was researching it myself and I saw that here was somebody that was writing about it. He happened to go to my same law school. He was in my same city. And so I hit him up, you know, like networking for me, like doesn't always have to be up the food chain. Like I don't always have to be looking for somebody who's doing better than me, somebody who has more experience than me. It's about connecting with somebody who you share, um, you know, common interests with. So I hit up Jared and we immediately hit it off. Um, I think we talked for hours at, you know, at a coffee shop until they shut the place down. I don't even know if we ordered anything. And, uh, you know, from there, Sneaker Law was born. Like we started talking more and more about how we had shared interests and, and how we wanted to do something bigger for the intersection of, of law and sneakers. And, uh, you know, none of this would have happened if he didn't put himself out there and I didn't reach out to him. So, um, you know, that was something that, you know, had I been uh, a little bit, you know, ego driven or, or um, had more hubris, like I, I, I might've said, oh, well, you know, why should this partner in a law firm reach out to, to a law school intern, you know? But um, I think we all bring in different experiences. And so networking can mean anything. And I've had great experiences with networking as long as I'm open-minded, as long as I don't go into it, like thinking, what can I get out of this? I think about, well, how, how can I help this person? How can we work together? And, uh, you know, that's something that, that will never leave me. And I, I practice daily. Is that so that the ego component is huge. And I wonder how else that shows up for you. And it sounds like you're, you've been able to learn a lot as a result of being able to put that ego side. Can you, can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I would say that's, it's something I definitely grew into in my, um, in my old age. Like I think, you know, coming out of law school and working in a firm in the city and, um, you know, wanting to rise through the ranks and then having my own law firm and, and acting like my own boss. And, you know, there was obviously a lot of ego in that. And there was a lot of um, posturing in court. There's a lot, there's always like lawyers are great at that, you know? So um, we love talking about ourselves, you know, uh, you know, maybe I wouldn't be that effective on this podcast if I didn't have that background. Right. So um, I think that's part of it, but I think at, at a certain point in someone's career, I, I would hope you realize that, you um, you know, we're in a community. And I think 
um, there's only so much we can do on our own. And I realized that, you know, like if I wanted to get where I was going, I needed to be aligned with someone else that shared my interest. And so I've taken that approach, um, you know, and I've wisened up in my old age and I've realized that I can do a lot more um, with others, with the help of others. And so, um, you know, that's just my approach and it served me very well. And I think now that I don't put ego um, or I, I try to minimize it as much as possible. I don't put it at the forefront of what I do. I've certainly seen uh, a great deal of, of, of more success, of more um, personal reward, of more um, uh, rewarding interactions with people. It's, it's a wonderful thing to, to set that aside. And, you know, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but it certainly worked for me. Uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that's awesome. Um, I love uh, just, I, I think that's something that, you know, I definitely could use a dose of, I think it's something that just is, is, is not talked about enough and especially in this profession, which is so driven by seniority. Uh, so I think that's a, a really cool concept. Yeah. And just on that, just on that point further, like I probably get at least 10 LinkedIn messages a week and I try to respond to every one of them. They're usually from people who, um, want to learn how I got to where I am. They're people from, from young students who um, have an interest in what I'm interested in and what I've made a career out of. And I respond to all of them. I usually take informational interviews because I remember what it was like to be in my shoes in law school and have there be nothing in front of me that I related to. And now um, I think that I, I personally um, have, have sort of laid out a blueprint for how you can break into an industry that you know, was never really spoken about in law school. And so um, I'm trying to change that. Jared's trying to change that. And the only way you can do that is by being accessible and also um, get, giving your time. And, you know, who knows, maybe maybe that will, will pay off. You know, maybe those things will pay dividends to me later on in life. Maybe not. Maybe I've just helped somebody's day out. But um, I feel like it's part of my, um, you know, my responsibility as uh, someone senior in the legal industry, in the in the fashion industry, in the sneaker industry, to give back, and I just remember how frustrating it was, especially in the music business. It was like this best kept secret of like how to break in. Nobody talked to you about it. They would try to close every door in front of you, and uh, if you couldn't break it down yourself, it was impossible. So, hopefully, I, I can make that process a little bit easier for other people. You know, on that note, I mean, there's so much more about, you know, uh, I was rereading The Long Tail recently, and it, it's still just an incredible read. And so it's, um, you know, the, talking about, you know, the, both the reductions in the cost of distribution and production. And so you can see how, you know, in other fields, you know, the, the, the huge reductions in that back end, you know, the proliferation you're seeing in e-commerce as a result of that because of, of entities like Shopify, uh, or with music now, there's you know, new discovery mechanisms like TikTok, you know, or Spotify, or all these other mediums uh, or platforms, I should say, for for how a small artist can break out. Um, what are the changes you're seeing, you know, as far as more indie artists in the sneaker space? Like, what what changes or new possibilities are are, are happening now? Uh, I think there are a ton. I mean, it's still fairly expensive to produce your own sneaker. But um, you see more and more people get into the customization business. You see more and more people get into um, designs and, and, and have their own, let's say, 
virtual portfolio on Instagram of designs that they've done, like alternate colorways of famous sneakers. And a lot of people have gotten discovered that way. You know, I think, um, you know, everything is getting, um, it's going from, from macro to micro. And in that sense, I mean, like, take a look at the uh, photography industry, right? Like it used to be super expensive to own all this equipment, to um, develop your own film, uh, you know, and now everyone can be a photographer if they want. Like they can go buy a DSLR camera, they can go buy some lenses and they can take amazing pictures, develop them at home, edit them on their own computer. The music business, no different. Like, you know, it used to be you had to go into a massive studio with Neve SSL boards. You had to pay hundreds of dollars an hour to, to rent out an engineer. Now you have, you know, uh, digital audio workstation softwares right at your fingertips. They're super inexpensive and you can produce an album. I mean, Billie Eilish did it with her brother in their, in their living room. Like, you know, and she won Grammys off that. So, um, you know, the sneaker industry is going through that same revolution. I think there's 3D printing now where you can print your own um, prototypes. You can send those prototypes to factories overseas. They can produce your sneaker. I mean, it's all possible. It's not all done in your own living room, but I don't think we're that far off from it. Um, and I've seen some amazing things just getting engaged in the sneaker design space from people that are um, indie, that want to that want to do this on their own, that want to have their own sneakers. I've seen some just really awesome designs. I've seen um, some people make mistakes like in, 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 in infringing on certain designs and getting burned for it. But I think it's all part of the democratization of the sneaker industry. And I think it's not far off. And, um, you know, V2 of Sneaker Law will have a, a section devoted to this and customization and, and all these, you know, breakthrough areas that um, really are shaking up the indie space. And, and, and we would be hypocrites if we didn't take some of that on our own um, shoulders. So Sneaker Law is entirely independently published. Um, we found our own printer in Sofia, Bulgaria. You know, we did everything start to finish in-house. And, you know, it's aside from a marketing team and, a, you know, uh, a really fresh uh, Gen Z designer named Al Park that we um, brought onto the team to, to help us visually get our message out there. You know, Jared and I did it all on our own. And so, you know, this is just another inspiration to, to show people. It's like, you know, you want to write a book, you want to, you know, make a sneaker, you want to drop an album, like do it on your own and learn through the process um, and you become more empowered. Yeah, I love that. So then I guess uh, let's take a law school student. So, I mean, you've got this book targeted to law school students. And forgive me if I miss it in there, but like, what is a, a tangible props you say to a law school student? Say, hey, you want to learn about sneaker law? Then do this. So, um, well, first of all, we expose you to the most essential areas of law that you have to know, right? So that's the basics. You, have, you should know intellectual property. You should know employment law. You should know a little bit about corporate formation, how to start your own entities and which entities are right for what type of business. Um, you know, so we've, so we've now laid all that out for you and that that's like essential. So basically we've given you like, you know, five different, uh, law school courses for the price of one book, $99, right? So like that's worth its weight in gold. And then on top of that, we've, you know, we're, we're now teaching you how, um, in chapter two, starting your own business, we teach you how to file your own trademark. We teach you how to file your own copyright. I mean, Again, like this is something that you'll have to pay a lawyer thousands of dollars to do on your own behalf. Like we've, we're showing you that as well. So right there, 
we're laying out some essential skills that every lawyer should know. And then aside from that, we're teaching you about the business. So, um, you know, I think that is a good enough start to propel you. And, you know, I think hopefully from there, any savvy law student will take this and say, all right, well, you know, Kenneth and Jared taught me what I need to know about patent law, but they really didn't go as deep as I would have liked about, you know, this patent and that patent and how to apply it. Like, you know, you now, at least you know now where to start and where to go. And, you know, that's the beautiful thing about being a law student is like every piece of knowledge is, is accessible if you know how to research and obtain it. And, um, you know, so we, 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 we laid it out for you. We, we've started the groundwork and hopefully um, people can build off of it and create their own careers out of this. Yeah, and I, I think um, what, something that I think that is uh, very cool is like how much you're conveying that these are the kinds of things that you've done yourself. I mean, you included your business plan, you know, in this book. I think it's, it's just a cool thing to share with someone to say, hey, look, this is, uh, it's pretty meta. And this is just like, hey, like, here's a step inside, like this world of how we pull this off. Well, you know, I want to talk a little more about, I guess, a couple of things about your time at Yeezy. I guess one thing is, you know, like someone like Kanye, you know, it's just one of the biggest stars in the world. And, you know, his creative process is so distinctive that, you know, people really want to understand it. And so he's a very studied subject. And so people really do analyze his deals. And so with that in mind, you know, and you were already very familiar with, you know, what he was up to because you're just, you just appreciate him as an artist, you were saying. But so what, you know, as a result of your tenure at Yeezy, what, what changes in perspective or new insights you have about Kanye as an artist and a business person? Like, what are some insights you gain about how someone like him operates? And of course, I recognize that this isn't about uh, any confidences, but just things that, you know, uh, you can speak to to say, hey, you know, these are new insights I have about how he thinks and uh, lessons. Because, you know, I think what's interesting to ask is, you know, we were talking just now about you know, these kind of indie ways to approach things. And the questions I'm kind of considering is like, okay, of course, Kanye, you know, busted his ass get where he is today and created all of that. Uh, but so he is in a, a completely different space than I am. You know, he's just like in a different league. So like how useful are the insights from learning about the way he thinks about things applicable to the individual? So I guess that's the two parts is what did you learn and what are the ways it applies to someone who's Indian just starting out? Sure. Um, you know, and, it, it, you know, without revealing any competences, I can tell you about, you know, just personally and what's what's publicly known. Like, I don't think there's anybody that, that works harder than Kanye West. Right. And like um, one of the things that I think people most relate to about Kanye is his ability to um, not be wavered in anything that he sets his mind to. Right. Like he like always there's outside voices that try to um, shut him down and try to um, talk about how you can't do this, you can't do that. Like he wanted to be a music producer and he had to break into that business. Then he wanted to be a rapper and people said, no, music producers can't be rappers. Then he wanted to be, you know, a fashion designer. And they said, you know, stay a rapper, you know, don't, don't get into this game. And he became one of the most successful fashion designers. Then he wanted to do architecture and like sneak, like so many different things. And, uh, you know, that should be a lesson in and of itself. It's like, don't listen to anybody, um, you know, if you believe in yourself. And I think Kanye and his ultimate like core and musical message and like, you know, whole ethos is like, um, he's the best cheerleader for, um, for 
believing in yourself. Like, you know, I think anybody that wants some inspiration should just turn on a Kanye song and like, you can believe like anything's possible after you listen to it. And so that to me is something that I already knew, but when I got to Yeezy, it was like, Oh shit, I'm here. Like I'm here and I'm seeing it. And, uh, and now I have to apply that to my life, you know? So I didn't just settle. I didn't just say, okay, well, I have this great job at Yeezy, like I'm set, you know, I can coast. I started learning as much about the business. I went back to business school. I got my executive MBA. I was writing a book on the side with Jared, you know, and I was looking at this like, I like, why can't I get out all my dreams? You know, like that's his motto. It's like getting out your dreams. Um, and, uh, you know, I think people need to do more of that. Like we, like the only thing standing in the way of ourselves is ourselves. You know, so, so, um, and Kanye's found a way to remove that, like completely, you know, and, and, and to the point where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost unreal. And I think, uh, you know, how somebody can go from, you know, being $58 million in debt in 2014, 2015 to being uh, a multi-billionaire in 2016 is, is unheard of. It's unheard of. And it only comes from being so resolute in your abilities and your vision and your goal. And, um, you know, it's not to say that everyone will accomplish it on such a grand scale, but I think everyone can benefit from that growth mindset and that, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, just dedication. And it's, it's not easy. Like you can see the amount of hate that he garners, the amount of backlash and the amount of negativity and the amount of just like criticism and you have to shut all that off. And it's really hard. You know, it's really hard. I think, you know, that was one of the exciting things about writing this book in the pandemic is that Jared and I, like after our day jobs were done, like we got on, you know, zoom with each other and we just put our heads down and like, we didn't even know where it would go. I mean, we had a business plan, as you said before, but um, we just got it done. And we weren't like asking people like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? We just kept with our vision and we put our head and we knew we believed in it. And um, you don't accomplish a lot when you're listening to outside noise. You don't accomplish a lot when you're second guessing yourself. And I think that's something that lawyers do all the time is overanalyze, is think about all the risks, is, um, you know, um, second guess themselves and I think that's why business people are inherently more successful than lawyers. And so I think it's essential for lawyers to understand more about what be, what it takes to be an ascent, a successful business person is just like risk tolerance, um, sometimes a little naivety, sometimes pure ignorance, you know, and, and lawyers are, are great at knowing everything, but then getting nothing done when it comes to risk. So, um, you know, that was one of the most eye-opening things of my time at Yeezy was like, all right, I'm a lawyer but like, here's a business and I need to develop this business mindset if I want to um, be successful in my next stage of my career. And sometimes that means putting aside all of the questions that you ask, all of the, you know, the overanalyzation, all of the risk um, assessment and just go after it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that definitely is something that can apply to you. Uh any of us today and there's, there's no excuses. I love your comment about how Connie is like the perfect example of someone who's just like totally just like cast, you know, discarded any form of self-doubt. It's just like this pure being of like self-belief, like how powerful that is. You know, that really does just like 
just that changes reality, you know, it's like that. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And it's all in our head, really. It's all in our head. It's all in our head. It's in our, it's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the little voices that talk, talk us out of things. It's um, the, the haters from the sidelines, the, the, the people that you call friends and family in your life that say, oh, you know, you could never do this. You could never do that. Um, you know, and I think, um, you know, he had a phenomenal support system in his mother. Um, you know, she instilled in him at a very early age just to believe in yourself and that you can do anything. And it's sort of so rudimentary, but it's something that's not practiced enough. And I, I hope I can instill that in, in my kids, like, you know, so that they have the fortitude to just keep pushing um, and, 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 you know, not be worried about failures or not be worried about outside criticism and just, uh, go after what you want to do. You know, one thing I'm, uh, wondering then is, you know, so uh, I'm picturing, you know, when you're talking about Kanye, I was just picturing, you know, like your, his mother and his origins. And so I, I lived in Chicago for a number of years. And so, you know, we were very proud of, of, uh, of Kanye there. And so thinking about, you know, well, so Kanye doesn't live in, in Chicago anymore. Right. So, um, you know, historically there's been these like cultural, you know, epicenters, of course, you know, LA, New York primarily. And, um, but then of course, other pockets, you know, Atlanta formed its own, you know, core, yeah. and, then, and then things get more distributed over time. So now you got people like Lil Nas X from not one of those places. And so yeah, Memphis, maybe. Memphis, yeah, is he from? I wish I, I wish I could remember. I thought it was somewhere in Georgia, but maybe not. Uh, well, anyhow, so just not one of these big cities. And so, right. so what do you think, you know, how is this going to pan out? I mean, is this, it's just going to continue to be, you know, this long tail of people from all over and, and you know, what are the variety of voices we're going to get? Like, how would Connie have changed? How, how, how would Connie have been different if he stayed in Chicago, if he had the opportunity to still make it as big as he is now? but it was flavored through Chicago. How different would he be? What would that look like? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I really don't know, don't know the answer to that, but I can say that as we grow as people, I think, you know, it's incumbent upon ourselves to get different experiences to go out and see the world. And so um, if you know that you're successful in a particular area and you know where that area is geographically most prevalent, I think you should go and you know, try to be the best of your game there. And then once you've conquered that, maybe you go somewhere else. And I think that's why, you know, uh, Kanye moved to Wyoming at one point, like he wanted to master farming and how to uh, manufacture in the United States and um, live off the land and like all those things. So, um, and also build these, uh, you know, uh, amazing community and home, you know, developments. So, um, you know, that's, that's his journey. And I think, you know, most people, um, like, let's say, you, you know, you're from little town America, you want to be an actor, you move to LA, right? Like, you want to make it in fashion, you might move to New York. So, you know, I think these sort of geographics are essential and part of everyone's growth. But I don't think, um, you know, I think today, as you said, we're seeing pockets of, of cities all over the place that are, um, that are booming in different ways. Like Miami is now a hotbed for tech, which you know, is really exciting. Um, you know, I was just down there teaching sneaker law with Jared at the University of Miami Law School, and it was amazing. Like, you know, you couldn't even get an Uber. Like, it was, it was, it was, it was incredible. Um, and I heard that like over four hundred thousand people have moved down to Miami during the pandemic, um, partially because of the warm weather, and then partially because of the opportunities. So, you know, I think um, 
as we as we grow, we have to be open to to where to where to grow, you know, and where to go, you know. So my business now has expanded into LA, and now we have a, a, an office in in Milan and a factory in the south of Italy. And so, you know, um, I never expected to be in those places, you know, seven years ago, but uh, but but here I am. And so, you know, I think as we grow out and our and our mind grows and our knowledge and our um, and our aspirations, I think you know the world should be um, our oyster. We should we should try to go out and and and, and you know access it. Yeah, and I, I want to hear about Italy in a second. But before I do, I gotta I gotta ask: Did you have a favorite Kanye album heading into working easy, and did that change? Um. Yes. Uh, you know, I I. I'm a huge Pablo fan. Like I, you know, I, I think what he did with Pablo was amazing. It's really like, it's like almost asking you to pick, you know, who your favorite child is. Um, uh, you know, my all time favorite Kanye album is my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Like, I just think that that's cinematically, um, and, and just musically the most complete album I've ever heard in my life. Like I would put it up there with like the Beatles white album. I would put it up there with Raekwon and Cars Ray Scarface. Like, it's just, it's just, um, you know, it's like Led Zeppelin houses of the Holy. Like my, my musical taste is very varied. And even though I'm a hip hop guy, like I was brought up on all different, um, um, you know, musical influences, but, but that to me was just, was just beautiful. I think, you know, in order to understand Kanye's journey, you know, musically, you see the progression. And so um, for me, I never get stuck on one particular album because I like to see how he grows musically, how he grows as an individual, how he grows in his businesses. And it's all reflected in his music. Like Jesus is King is the first all Kanye album that I can play for my kids in the car with no um, censoring, um, you know, and it's beautiful. Like, and and then I also I also bumped the unreleased Yandi. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's it's insane. So okay, I'm assuming this is not on Spotify. No, 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 no. You gotta dig, you gotta dig for that one. Uh okay, so Italy, uh I love Italy a lot. So you're so it sounds like you've got connections to both northern and southern Italy. So tell me about what are the differences that you've experienced between those two parts? I mean, um, you know, I think uh, you know, fashion is all in, in, in the North in Milan and, um, but all the trades and, you know, tradespeople and the, the manufacturers and the, in the, you know, the, the artisans are, are tend to be like further South and toward the central East coast of, of Italy in the Lamarque region. And so, you know, I've been, um, really fortunate to get to meet some amazing factories to, to get to work with some amazing artisans and, um, manufacturers and uh, really understand how there are different pockets of, of experiences and, and um, of skills, depending on where you go. Like, um, and even not in fashion, like, you know, Murano glass and, um, you know, Venetian glass and um, Carrera marble, like, like all these things, like it, there's so many different areas of, of skills and artisan artistry it's really a beautiful country, rich with so many different things. And then obviously you have wine and, you know, you have the Tuscany region, like, um, and then you have the Amalfi coast and Capri and, um, you know, so I've, 
I've uh, I've been studying uh, Duolingo. I've been on my app trying to learn Italian regularly because um, you know it'll help me communicate better with my partners and um, all the people that we interact with. Uh, and I've really enjoyed learning more about the culture and and um, it's a it's a it's a beautiful country rich with uh, foods, you know, art and uh, and history. I think it's incredible. It's been a little while since I've checked this, but you know, it's got like the tenth or eleventh largest GDP in the world. Which really? Is like, yeah, it's pretty hard to grasp. But I think so much of that is exports, including fashion and automobiles, which is incredible to me. That is. Yeah, I enjoyed Milan a lot, and yeah, everyone was was very very dapper. It was just like an unreal level of standard for men. Just like you've got to be kidding me. This is the way that you all dress. It's not exactly yeah. my look, but I appreciate that level of attention and people not yeah. swab, you know? No, no, no. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm still very impressed at the, uh, at how swab some of these Italian businessmen are, you know, and, and I definitely um, used to, used to embody a little bit of that when I was a, a litigator and, and, and going into court, but it's just a, a certain uh, panache that you have as a, when you're Italian and, and, and um, in your, you know, suits and looking very sartorial. So so with this new era that you're in now, I mean, like, what are the things that are the biggest departures from how you used to work? Uh, you know, I think um, when I was a practicing lawyer, I, I worked very independently. Um, you know, I did a lot of independent research. I did a lot of independent writing. Um, and I think now I work collaboratively. I have partners that I collaborate with on, on my licensing business. I, we have brands that we collaborate with in order to develop, manufacture, produce, and distribute their collections. Um, and then I collaborate with Jared on Sneaker Law. And, um, you know, that's been very exciting to me because I, I don't have to wake up and just be reliant upon my own um, ambitions, my own drive, my own um I guess, attitude of the day, like I can connect with other people and I can feed off of their energy and we can build together. And I really like that. And I think, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it's hard, it's hard to collaborate as a lawyer. You're given assignments, you go back to your office, you go back to the partner, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think, um, part of understanding business is working with different people in different disciplines and, and skill sets. So, I've really enjoyed finding people that complement my skill sets. My partner Cristiano is an amazing complement to my skill set. Um, he brings 25 years in the fashion industry. He brings a, a really good approach of dealing with designers and creative people that I admire and that I try to, um, you know, um, you know, embody in my own approach. And uh, and Jared's the same, you know, on the sneaker law side. Like, you know, um, his approach is. You know, he's laid back, um, you know, I'm a little bit more high, strong and, and, and uh, impatient. And, um, you know, just I think I think that's the beauty of it is like, um, you know, finding people that compliment you and collaborating and and growing. Yeah, I think that's 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 awesome. And I think um, it seems so much a luxury of you know, your career as you progress, but I don't think there's anything you're talking about that you can't be seeking earlier, you know, in your career to find. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, I tell 
most of the the students and, and, and young individuals that I speak with that like, you don't have to take my path. Like don't wait 15 years to wake up and realize that you like um, love sneakers, love, love fashion. And that you want to make that your full-time, um, you know, uh, interest. So like um, in, in fact, you know, jump into it while you're young and you don't have all the responsibilities that I did, you know, um, two kids, a mortgage and, you know, um, uh, you know, a very supportive wife. So, um, you know, the, the earlier that you can get involved in what you're passionate about, I think the better. But I think that's part of what's so remarkable about your story is, you know, like the changes that you made at a point when you were, you're very comfortable with what you're doing, you could have stuck with that. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been pleasurable, but it was comfortable. And those are trade-offs sometimes. And so I really admire that you made that switch. And so I think what you're done doesn't just speak to law students, it speaks to people at any stage of their career, frankly, fairly senior stages, uh, to say, hey, you know, like do a reassessment of what's really important to you, what's driving you. It's just, it's hard to come by, period. You know, people don't really do this stuff. Yeah, I, you know, I I agree. And uh, it was it was a lot um, to take in at the time and it was a big risk. And um, had I thought it through a little bit more, maybe I wouldn't have done it. But, um, you know, also being a partner in a law firm is a, is a grind. And I'm not saying that like I was um, wildly successful at it, right? Like maybe if I had a book, you know, a $10 million book of business, you know, we wouldn't be having this discussion right now. I'd be kicking back and letting my associates do work for me. But, you know, it's really hard. And I, you know, um, I struggled year after year to continue to bring in business, to develop business, um, to work with my partners and getting them to refer work to me. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. And, uh, although, um, the pay was adequate, you know, I just, uh, I just saw it as like a long road ahead and I, and I, I wanted something different. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people will take a look at their legal careers and say, okay, well, I'll go in house now, or, you know, or, um, you know, maybe I'll be a real estate, real estate broker, or, you know, I think the important thing is to not live above your means so that you can make these decisions and you're not wedded to firm life. Um, you know, many people go into these law firms, they get the fancy apartment, they start traveling all over the world, they get married, they have kids, they get a mortgage, they, you know, um, they live close to the office in expensive places, you know, and, and before you know it, um, your ability to move out and do something radical or a little bit risky is diminished. So um, I was very fortunate that I had a, a wife who was also a practicing attorney. Um, you know, she supported me in some of my crazy harebrained risky moves. And, uh, you know, and now I'm able to repay that. And, and she was able to um, take a step away from her job and concentrate on our family. So, you know, um, having somebody that supports you in these decisions is, I can't, I can't state under, you know, I can't overstate that, you know, it's, it's, it's super helpful. And maybe I wouldn't be able to have done that had I not had that luxury. Yeah. But you know what, the corresponding virtue is that you are sharing that with people so they can be thinking about that earlier on. So uh, yeah. I think it's awesome that you're doing that. Well, hey, you know what? This is, uh, I learned a ton. This is super interesting, Kenneth, and I appreciate uh, you sharing, you know, your experiences. And uh, thanks, man. Yeah, man. I, I, you know, I'm really uh, super impressed by the platform that you're building here. And I think, um, you know, if I contributed in any way and, and helped some people out, then we, you know, we did a good job today, you and I.
mission accomplished. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing it.